0: In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. ...while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew... ...and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains... ...on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil... ...and everything else the ground produces... ...on people and livestock... ...and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel... ...Joshua, son of josadak the high priest... And the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jozadak the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. In the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jozadak the high priest, And to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine. And the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil or other food, does it become consecrated? The priests answered, no. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priests replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, So it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree... Have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers, horses and their riders will fall each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Well, it's been a bit of a tiring time in our church, hasn't it? Over the the past couple of years, the entire staff team has changed over, I've I've been part of that. And that means a lot of change, and change is tiring. It can be positive, it can be exciting, but it's almost always tiring. And we've had events this year as well that have been difficult for everyone, and that's tiring as well. So if you're here this morning and and you are feeling a bit tired, then that is completely understandable. The prophet Haggai, 2,500 years ago, spoke to tired people, people who were discouraged, frustrated, overwhelmed at their circumstances. And his message to them was that God was with them, that God promised them great blessings, and that God had high expectations of them. He wanted their best. It's a message full of relevance and encouragement and challenge for us today as we read it. Now, Haggai probably isn't a book that you're too familiar with. I certainly wasn't particularly familiar with it until I prepared this talk. Uh, Simon Potter, who was service leading at 9am, asked if anyone knew the books that were before and after it in the Bible, and I was hoping you didn't ask me, because I I didn't know that. It's it's not, not a book we're particularly familiar with. It was written after the people of the southern kingdom of Israel had returned to their land after exile. So they'd been taken to exile... In Babylon. That was what God had punished them with, as, as punishment for rejecting him and rebelling against him. And eventually, Babylon was defeated by Persia, and the Persian king arranged for the Israelites to return to their original land and, and to resettle there. And that was, that was 538 BC when that happened. And what we read in another book in the Old Testament, the book of Ezra, is that they set about rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, which had been destroyed when the exile had taken place. But they faced so much opposition from the surrounding nations who were trying to stop the temple from being rebuilt that eventually they gave up. Work on the temple stopped until the second year of the Persian king Darius in 520 BC, so 18 years had passed. And this was a difficult time for Israel. It was a time of economic hardship, There was a lot of social instability at the time. There were a lot of uprisings against the Persian Empire at this time, and Israel were were caught up in the midst of that. And as we read, there was drought. Crops were failing. So Israel was weak. It was vulnerable. It was a shadow of its former strength. And into this situation, Haggai comes along, and he brings four messages from God over a period of about four months. And his first message in chapter 1 is for God's people to get their priorities right. Have a look there in verses 5 and 6, where Haggai points out to them the situation that they find themselves in. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. So they're living futile, frustrating, unfulfilling lives. And the reason, Haggai tells them, is that their priorities are wrong. They haven't rebuilt God's house, God's temple. And their reason for not rebuilding it, we see in verse 2 there, is that the time hasn't yet come. Which seems, seems kind of reasonable, actually, doesn't it? They've got a lot of distractions going on at the time Uh, they've got a famine going on they've got all of the other rebuilding that they're trying to do they've got opposition all around them they've got a lack of money and a lack of resources there's a lot happening for them but the issue that Haggai raises at the end of verse nine is that they're all busy with their own houses while God's house remains a ruin Verse 4, they're furnishing their houses with panelled walls and ceilings while God's house remains in ruins. It all comes down to what they ought to be prioritising. Haggai tells them, verse 8, what you ought to be seeking after is God's pleasure and honour. And he rams it home to them in verses 9 and 11. He tells them, your lives are unfulfilling because... You've neglected God's honour. So why is the temple so important? Well, because it was the place of God's presence with his people. When King Solomon originally built the temple and he dedicated it back in 1 Kings chapter 8, so about 400 years earlier, we read that the the, the glory of God visibly filled the temple for everyone to see. But then fast forward a few hundred years and we get to Ezekiel chapter 10, which is written around the time that the exile was happening. And there's this devastating vision where the glory of God departs the temple. God leaves the temple. He leaves the presence of his people. But later on, Ezekiel has another vision. He has a vision of a restored temple with God's glory returning and God's people being restored, being restored to relationship with God. And so the temple is a vital part of Israel's relationship with God. And interestingly, the struggles that Israel were experiencing at this time were consistent with the covenant curses that God had warned them would happen if they disobeyed him. If we were to fast forward right back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, which was written just before Israel entered the promised land after escaping from Egypt, as Israel are right on the edge of the promised land, ready to go in, Moses reminds them of the covenant relationship that God has made with them. He tells them that there there are going to be great blessings if they obey this covenant, but that there will be terrible curses if they disobey it. And two of the big curses that he warns them about are exile and poor harvests. So we've seen the exile has already happened. The poor harvests are now happening as we get to Haggai. And so what's happened and what is still happening to Israel, is consistent with what God has warned them all along will happen if they don't obey him. So how do the people respond to God's word through Haggai? Well, they obey it. Their spirits are stirred up, they fear the Lord, and they begin working on the temple. The lesson to learn here is that God's priorities need to be ours. God's priorities need to be ours. Whose interests do I have at heart? Mine or God's? Whose kingdom am I trying to build? Can I honestly say that my time, my energy, my money, that these things are being used for God's pleasure and glory? Am I giving God my best? That's the heart of the issue here. Now, of course, that doesn't mean giving every cent of your money To the church, it doesn't mean giving every single minute of your time to volunteering at church. But it's a challenge to think through whether the way that we use what we've got is giving God the honour that is due to him. If you're here this morning as a follower of Jesus, is that clear in the way that you use what God has given you? It's challenging. It's challenging because, like the Israelites back in Haggai's day, there are lots of reasons for us not to use our time, our energy, and our gifts for God's glory. Chris and I were on a plane flight in late June to go to a conference over in New South Wales. Uh, if you're around at this time, you'd be aware that June was a pretty tiring time for us, and so we were pretty pretty wiped as we got on that plane. Chris was sitting in the window seat, I was sitting in the, the middle seat, and I had a a free, speak, a free seat next to me. And the last few people are getting on the plane. I'm, I'm sure you've had that happen before where there's a free seat next to you and you're thinking, I'd just love this seat to stay free. I just love the extra room. And then the, the last person gets on the plane, the plane doors get closed and I'm thinking, please don't be sitting next to me. Please don't be sitting, sitting next to me. And of course, he comes along and he sits right next to me. And I think, oh, well, that's all right, I suppose. And then he gets out his phone and he starts trying to talk to me and he starts trying to sort of... T- Showing me all these photos of cars that he's done up and he's going through and he's really excited and he's wanting to get my input into it. And and I'm just sitting there thinking, I just want to read a book and not think about this. I I don't even know the difference between a fuel injector and an engine. I've got no idea what, what a car is meant to be like. And then I thought to myself, Mark, you're on a plane flight on the way to a conference called Reach Australia which is about all about trying to reach Australia with the gospel. Why don't you try reaching the person who's pressed up against you in Jetstar economy? That might be, a, might be a good start to make. It was hard, though, because at that moment, at that moment, I would much rather have just kept to myself and just had a couple of quiet hours in the plane rather than put myself out there and tried to have a, a conversation that might bring glory to God. Turned out, as soon as he found out I was religious, he didn't want anything to do with me at all, so I, I, I got the peaceful flight that I wanted, but I was, certainly, I was certainly rebuked by the lesson that God taught me there. But it's encouraging, isn't it, when, when we see people making God's priorities theirs, making decisions that prioritize God's purposes above their own. When we see people putting their time, their money, their energy, their gifts at God's disposal. I've been really encouraged by our Year 12s, particularly this year, who've been coming along regularly on, on Sundays and on, on Friday nights as well. Even though they're deep in exam study and even though they've got a lot going on, I've been really encouraged by, by the commitment that they've made. And, and some of them are even running a, a worship night coming up, which, which you would have heard about, Hilltop Praise, which is coming up in November. It's been really encouraging to see the way that even in the midst of busyness and School and study and, and pressure that they've really thrown themselves into serving God in this way. So what does it look like for me to give God my best, to make sure that his pleasure and his honour are being prioritised in my life? Is there anything that we find it hard to give to him? Anything that we just prefer to, to keep to ourselves? I reflected on this myself, and I realised that Time is one of those things that I find it hard to give God my best of. When things are busy and the to-do list is beginning to pile up and I wonder how I can get on top of everything that needs to be done, it's easy for prayer just to get squeezed into those, those little pockets of time that you get between everything else. Not deliberately, but because there's lots of tasks to get done, there's lots of people to talk to, and there'll be more time to pray properly once all of that's done. It's not really giving God my best, though, is it? It's really just giving him the Turkish delights at the the bottom of the Cadbury's favourite box, which that would have made a lot more sense if I'd done the kids' talk at 11 as well as 9, but go with me on that one. Committing time to prayer, even when I'm busy, is part of what it looks like for me to prioritise God's glory. So is there anything that you find it hard to give God your best of? First message from Haggai, getting our priorities right. Second message, God is with them. This would have been a great time of discouragement for Israel. They've had an arduous month or so, clearing the rubble from the temple side and and beginning the rebuild process. It's the festival month at this time as well, which is just yet another reminder for them that they don't have a proper temple to celebrate the festivals in. And as Haggai reminds them in verse 3, What remains is nothing compared to the former glory of the temple. And so the people would have been overwhelmed by the circumstances and the expectations that they were facing at that time. What does God tell them in the midst of this? Verse 4, be strong and work, for I am with you. Verse 5, do not fear, my spirit remains among you. And then in verses 6 to 9, he tells them what he's going to do. He's going to shake the heavens and the earth and fill this house, the temple, with a greater glory than before. Now what we don't read in Haggai, but we do read it as we look at the book of Ezra, is how God partially fulfills this promise over the coming years. The temple rebuilding process begins and Israel's enemies come along again and they try to interfere with the rebuilding. They talk to the Persian king and they try to get him to put a stop to the rebuilding. But the king instead declares that the the rebuilding costs will be covered by the royal treasury. And so in other words, the rebuilding of the temple is going to be funded by the very nations who are trying to prevent it. The articles that were taken from the temple years earlier when it was destroyed by the Babylonians are returned, and the temple is completed four years later. So the nations are shaken, the treasures of the nations are brought to the temple, and God's house is filled with glory once again. But there's a greater glory to come. Fast forward another 500 plus years, and Jesus will come to this temple and will speak of himself as being the temple. Because the temple represents God's presence with his people. And that's exactly who Jesus is. By the time that the second temple was destroyed by the Romans a few decades after that, Jesus had died, he'd been raised back to life, he'd ascended back to heaven, and he'd sent his Holy Spirit out to dwell with his people. And as we've read over the the last couple of months in our time in 1 Corinthians, not only is the church God's temple where God dwells by his Holy Spirit, but our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit within us. And so if we've trusted in Jesus, then God is present with us. There isn't a special building that we have to go to to be with him. He is with us. The first message, get your priorities right. Second message... God is with you. The third and fourth messages, which are delivered by Haggai on the same day, are both promises of blessing. In verses 11 to 14, Haggai explains that uncleanness is more contagious than holiness. And the point he's making here is that the disobedience of the people means that the offerings that they bring to God are defiled because their hearts weren't inclined towards God's pleasure and honor. Wasn't simply offering sacrifices that was needed. It was actually the heart attitude that was behind those sacrifices that was important. But a turning point has happened here. God's people have responded in faith by rebuilding the temple. And so the covenant curses are going to be replaced with blessings. Blessings not only for Israel, but also for its ruler, as we see in the final few verses. A day is coming, we read, when God will shake the heavens and earth where he'll overthrow thrones and rulers and make Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, like his signet ring. Now, the symbolism of that is probably a bit lost on us in this day and age, but a signet ring was something that a king used to validate documents, to show that a document was signed by him. It was something very precious, something that he kept close to him, At all times, probably a mobile phone would be the the closest equivalent we can think of today. Now, there's no evidence that Zerubbabel himself ever reached these kind of heights. We don't really hear much more about him in the Bible. But one of his descendants will indeed be exalted on that last day when all other thrones and rulers are overthrown. Jesus has come as the great king and servant Jesus, through his death, as we celebrated in the Lord's Supper this morning, made the perfect undefiled offering to God that Israel couldn't, and that we couldn't either. You see, the the offerings that the people brought before God were imperfect because their hearts were still imperfect. The fact is that anything that we do for God is defiled. It's stained with a desire for our own pleasure and our own honor rather than God's. We can't satisfy God by our own strength and goodness because that's what sin is. It's wanting our own pleasure and our own honor rather than seeking God's first. So we can't satisfy God by our own strength and goodness. Not even the best person who has ever lived apart from Jesus can do that. Alicia and I have um, very different views on how important it is for a bed to be made properly and neatly and regularly. Having the bed made makes her very happy. It's just one of those, one of those things that that satisfies her. Whereas for me, I really couldn't care less. Anyway, a while ago, she was she was having a bad day, and I thought to myself, I can't remember if I'd caused it or not, but I th- I thought to myself what can I do as a loving husband in this situation? So I thought, I'll make the bed. It's, it's been a while, she likes the bed made regularly. I'll give it a crack. I'd never done it on my own before, but I'd kind of seen her do it and it seemed, seemed doable. But I knew she was fussy about how she wanted it done, so I put aside a bit of time. I And I did my best. I made sure every fold was was nice and tightly done. Everything was aligned perfectly. Made sure it was all tied in tightly. You could have bounced a tennis ball off it by the time I was finished with it. It just looked absolutely stunning. Um, And I'm thinking to myself, she's going to love this. She's going to walk in, and it's just going to make her day. So she's walked into the the bedroom, and I'm thinking, yep, here we go. Just get ready to absorb some compliments. She's she's walking, she's looked at the bed and gone. Oh, honey, you tried to make the bed. (laughs) Not, you made the bed, thank you. (laughs) You tried to make the bed. Now, my, my intent may have been noble, but as it turned out, the best of my efforts were hopelessly inadequate in that situation. And in the same way, none of us can satisfy God by our own strength and our own goodness. Now, if you're here this morning checking out church and Christianity, working out what it's all about, this is crucial to understand. We don't tick off God's expectations. We fall on his mercy. You see, the blessings that God promises to us aren't primarily good rainfall, good crops, freedom from our enemies. He may choose to give us these things. He may not. Material curses and blessings are promises under the old covenant. But Jesus has brought in a new and better covenant. The blessings that God promises us are sins forgiven, eternal life, a life with none of the pains and the frustrations that we experience now. This is greater than any material blessings. So how do we get these blessings? We accept Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf we fall on his mercy we live with him as our king God is present with his people he promises us great blessings and calls us to seek his pleasure and his honour what a great encouragement to lean on particularly during a tiring season of church life God hasn't left this church his promises are as real as they've ever been He wants this church to to bring him more and more, to bring him great glory. And he's the only one who can make that happen. But he invites all of us to be a part of that. The conference that Chris and I were were flying to that day, as I said, was all about reaching Australia with the gospel. So many people in this, this suburb, in this state, in this country, in this world, Have rejected Jesus. They've rejected his message of salvation. There's never been more for us to do as his church. So, even as we adjust to the the changes that have happened, let's keep doing the work that God has given us to do to grow his church. Let's keep coming along, encouraging one another, digging deep into God's word, praying for one another, taking risks, trying new things speaking the truth in love, let's keep giving God our best. Because the God who did amazing things to restore Israel, the God who sent his son to redeem us, he's with us. He's mighty, and he's worthy of all glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this message in the book of Haggai, words that meant the world to your people all those years ago and are still so important for us today, And, and words that we understand even better now that we have known that Jesus has come, that Jesus has brought in a new covenant, that he's brought in even greater blessings, and that we can look forward to the hope that we have in him. Please help us to hold fast to that hope, to the blessings that are to come, Please help us to go about living life for your glory, knowing that you are present with us by your spirit, that you want to be honoured and glorified through us, and that you are powerful enough to bring that about. Please help us to have hearts for you, hearts for your glory, that we would give you our best in everything that we do, knowing that you have secured our eternal life, that you have paved the way for us to be saved. to have a better future than we could ever imagine. In Jesus' name, amen.